0: Please be seated. You could pick up your Bibles, open them to Titus chapter 3. I'll be covering elements of chapters 1 and 2, but our portion of Scripture with which we will deal comes from Titus chapter 3, and I'll read the entire chapter. Hear now God's holy word. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly." That they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and striving about the lo- strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, uh, after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he is such knowing that he that is such is subverted, and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenith the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee, greet them that love us in the faith grace be with you all. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that you would continue to bless the hearing, the reading of your word. I pray that we would bring glory and honor to you in how the word is preached and how it is received, that the words of mere men be forgotten and your words by your Holy Ghost's work in our lives be committed to our memory, that we might be zealous unto good works, for your name's sake. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Chapter 3 of Titus, of Paul's letter to Titus, kind of puts it all together. I've said it several times down here. I'm horrible at coming up with the titles for sermons. I'm certainly not a wordsmith with regards to that. So we're going to put it all together today. Paul has left Titus in Crete with a mind to train up elders and to serve the churches. He mentions in Titus chapter 1 that there are problems, things that are out of order. And so he sets Titus in Crete and basically says, let's get some things in order there. Titus uh, was a uh, companion of Paul's as Paul works through and travels As the Apostle to the Gentiles, he's planting churches, to use the modern vernacular, and the idea is to train up local elders for the local church congregation. So we have Presbyterianism on display in the New Testament. We have it elsewhere in the Old Testament as well, but that's a conversation for another day. But the goal for Titus is to, and this is where I'll be referring to chapters 1 and 2, The goal for Titus is to raise up local elders, so Titus needs to know what those attributes are that he might be looking for within the church in Crete. And he's given the list, starting in chapter 1, verse 6. You can flip there if you want. You can just stand in chapter 3, and I'll read. Paul tells Titus, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly, For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. So we've got some introductory concepts here. Obviously, we have the officers of the church being limited to men only. You cannot be a husband of one wife if you are the wife of a husband. That's not the way logic works. We have what the Westminster divines tell us is good and necessary consequence. What that means is we can deduce from what Scripture says those commands from Scripture. We don't have a thou shalt be a man if you are to be an elder, but we do have Paul's language under inspiration of the Holy Ghost saying the husband of one wife. And so our logic, being informed by the Holy Ghost, tells us that. So if you see me refer to other elements of good and necessary consequence, that's the framework through which I'm reading the Scriptures. So we have other attributes here. Now... I've said this elsewhere, for a bishop must be blameless. That doesn't mean that our, his enemies can't even say you know, anything bad about him, because you're going to have that war. But the man's character ought to be such that even his enemies will grudgingly say, yeah, I don't believe what he believes, and I think he's a loon and a nut, but he's an honest person, he deals with me straight, he's a straight shooter, to use the modern parlance. So we're going to have a a balance there. On the one hand, Christ has told us that we're going to have enemies. So we're going to have this tension there because as we read in in Ephesians, we have the old self and the new self. So the old self is at war with the new self internally, but it's also at war out in the outside world as well. So we're going to have that conflict. But at the same time, the the elder candidate, again, using some modern language, is such... That even his enemies are going to say, "Yeah, I can see why that church would want to have that man stand as an elder, because he seems to be a straight guy. He's honest with me. I might not agree with him. I might think this whole Christianity thing's a kind of a, a weird thing, but he's got the sort of personality that I can at least respect." That's the mindset behind this blameless um, admonition there, as as Titus needs to examine. But then we have a short list in chapter 1, verse 7, of things that he shouldn't be. Shouldn't be self-willed. So he shouldn't be so stubbornly self-absorbed and self-focused. And that stands to reason. If you think about who we serve and how selfless Jesus was, who gave up perfect fellowship with the other members of the Trinity and came down out of a sense of love, and gave that up, and was under the curse of the law. Born of a woman, born under the law. Accused of crimes that he didn't commit. Put to death. Scourged, beaten, all of that. You don't see self-willedness. And so, for an officer, that's what we're talking about here, an elder in Christ's church, it makes sense, again, some good and necessary consequence here, that that officer should exemplify the same things that Christ exemplified on earth. So we don't want some self-absorbed egomaniac here, somebody that's not, uh, not easily angered. Remember what we've read elsewhere in Scripture, that the Lord is what? He's slow to anger. So that elder needs to similarly be slow to anger. Now, slow to anger doesn't mean no to anger. There is a point at which the Lord's anger is kindled. Psalm 7, verse 11 says that the Lord is angry with the wicked every day. So there is a sense in which God has anger. It isn't informed by passions the way our human anger is. It's it's the holiest of righteous indignation. And so for the elder in, in Crete, Titus needs to look for people that aren't soon angry. If we have a deck of cards that we play in tense situations, the top card on the deck can't be just losing your temper and getting angry. That's the point behind what Paul is telling Titus. And he's not given to filthy lucre. He's not given to wine or striker, which would say that he's in it for the wrong reasons. He's there to satisfy his own ego, his own lusts, because that's really what given to wine is. You're you're giving over to your own passions, your own lusts, And obviously, not being a striker seems to be obvious. I mean, it seems to be a no-brainer there that an elder in the church should not lay hands on someone. It shouldn't be prone to violence, which would speak to a lack of sobriety, which we're going to get to as we come up to Titus chapter 3. And in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, These men should be lovers of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, Moving to verse 9, holding fast to the faithful word as he had been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. So there's a, self, there's a lack of selfishness and a promotion in his own life and conduct of selflessness wants to be around those people that are good, those people that are fellow Christians, that, are, that he understands sound doctrine to know the distinction He wants to be hospitable, which speaks to a lack of selfishness. Because what is hospitality if not giving of yourself, opening up every element of your life if need be, under certain appropriate situations, obviously, but opening your home, giving of yourself and the resources, recognizing that God gave you those resources, and he gave them to you for a particular purpose, so that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. We do that by sharing as Christ shared and gave of himself. So again, we're seeing a pattern developed that the leaders within the church ought to exemplify and typify those attributes that Christ himself shared. To the uh, the effect of being able to exhort and encourage, but also to convince the gainsayer, the people that are just contrarians. So recognizing and knowing sound doctrine. And then he goes on with some issues facing the Cretan church in particular. And he reminds Titus, look, it's so bad, even one of their own, that Calvin names as Epimenides, would say, look, Cretans are just liars. They're brute beasts. They're slow bellies. They're horrible. He says, so you need to be paid careful attention. You know how bad it is there. Here are the standards by which you ought to weigh who should be an elder in Christ's church. And so that's one of of the reasons this is a pastoral epistle, because we have that standard. But then chapter 2, we expand things out a little bit more. It's not just the officers of the church. It's what the officers should be teaching and how these folks should be living their own lives. And not surprisingly, you see some of the same attributes. It's been said, some people would say that one of the ways you can see who should be an elder or an officer in the church, an elder or a deacon, is that they are already doing the kinds of things that an elder or deacon would do because they're already showing you the attributes that they possess. Well, how are they going to be doing that if the current crop of elders aren't teaching and exhorting and aware of the sound doctrine to equip them? And that's the larger point. He says the people ought to be doing the same kinds of things. They ought to have the same kind of priorities. The aged men should be sober and grave and temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. In patience, not impatience for anybody listening at home. The aged women likewise, verse 3 of chapter 2, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, Keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. This is Paul's words to Titus to teach the elders, and the elders will teach the people. So there's a place in the church for everyone. If you have gray in your beard or gray in your hair, you have a role to play in the church. This community of believers equipped with sound doctrine from godly elders that are qualified but they're equipping a pool of people that will then be the next elders because the attributes really are the same nobody would would think that I was intelligent in any form or fashion if I said yeah only officers have to be chaste and sober it's not it's not you know regular rank and file pew sitting Christians they don't have to be sober and chaste they can do whatever they want that would be ridiculous So, as Paul is telling Titus, these are the things you need to pay attention to to teach the elders to teach the people. So we've got elders, we've got uh, the pew-sitting folks. For the grace of God, this is verse 11 of chapter 2 before we get to chapter 3, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation have appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great god and our savior jesus christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works and therein is the transition to chapter three it's what we've heard really through every time that we've read scripture this morning this concept of regeneration needing to be born again well there must have been something faulty with our first birth if we needed to be born again jesus talks to that speaks to that in his conversation with nicodemus that we need to be born again that something was wrong we see the old self and the new self and the old man and the new man and if we are regenerated again that speaks to some sort of transition and What is the the origin of that transition? This is what we'll talk about in chapter 3. So Paul is, is talking to Titus, and he says, here's what you need to tell him. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready for every good work. We want to be careful with that, because a lot of times, especially in this current climate, the idea of obeying powers and principalities and magistrates has been weaponized, has been used in such a way that the scriptures don't speak to. We see the idea of the magistrate being God's ordained servant. He bears the sword. This isn't the context to talk about the doctrine of the lesser magistrate or things like that. But we do see that Christians are, under normal circumstances, to the extent that they are called not to violate the commands of Scripture to submit to their magistrates. Now, that is a larger conversation. We can have the discussion about, well, what happens when the magistrate asks them to do something that's, that they disagree with? Well, under, by what standard are we disagreeing? If, it, if, if Scripture tells us not to do something and the magistrate tells us to do it, then we ought to obey God and not man. And there there is a path down which we travel dealing with that issue. But look at the larger attributes in play here, because we go on as, as Titus is taught to teach the folks to be subject to principalities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawler, again, to be no brawler, to not be contentious in the same way that elders aren't supposed to be contentious. We're putting it all together. There's a pattern of behavior here. We're supposed to be gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. We're supposed to be patient and obedient, not subservient in the way the world would say it, but submissive to the will of God, that we might live at peace with all men So as as much as it depends on us. That doesn't mean we sidestep and walk around issues that might be challenging. When the magistrate is evil, we speak to that. When the magistrate asks us to sin, we do not sin. It's not what, within the context of what Paul is telling Titus to teach. That's not what he's saying here. But the idea here is to be sober and submissive, bearing in mind that we are new creations in Christ, because that's where he's traveling in the rest of this chapter. Look at verse 3 with me. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So what he's saying is, look, I know where you are. We've already talked about how bad it is there. Your officers and your church folk need to be sober-minded. They need to be submissive to authority, not in the excusing the government not in the sense that the that many in the world would want to say that the government can do no wrong and you have to stand by and just let it happen that's not it at all but you have in Crete a situation where people are out of control and they're self-righteous and they're self-willed everything that he says to Titus that an elder shouldn't be was going on there in Crete and so what are we talking about we're talking about piety. We're talking about living a holy life, not pietism, not an emotional feel-goodery, but genuine, biblical, Christ-centered piety. And he says to Titus, again, remembering contextually, this is a letter to Titus. He said, we used to be this way. You remember how you were, Titus, in effect, is what he's saying. Look at verse 3 with me again. We were foolish, disobedient deceived we were living in malice and envy we were serving all sorts of lusts we were once that way he says teach them not to be that way you remember how we were but look at verse 4 because verse 4 starts getting us to see things a little bit more clearly but after the kindness and love of god our savior toward man appeared So remember that we have that old self, new self, the old man, the new man, the natural man, and the spiritual man. Now we see what makes the natural man the spiritual man. Now we see how we're born again. The kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man. Now what was that kindness? It's the cross work of Christ. It's Christ, it's the incarnation. It's Christ coming down from heaven, eschewing for a time that perfect fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, and coming down and being born under a woman. Paul would say to the Galatians, in the fullness of time, being born of a woman, born under the law, all of the things that we talk about when we talk about the finished work of Christ, His birth, His life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. All of those things manifest themselves in this small phrase, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man. Because it wasn't for his benefit that he did this. He did it for us and for our salvation. He did it willingly. So verse 4 tells us how the natural man becomes the spiritual man. It tells us how Titus and Paul and us... And some of the born-again Christians are no longer foolish, disobedient, deceived, and so on. That conversion changes everything. Paul told the Corinthians that that if anyone was in Christ, he was a new creation. He said, look, the old is gone. The new has come. Ezekiel talked about how God was going to remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. A stone does nothing. It's dead. It's a lump. But a heart of flesh, that works, that functions. Life courses through the body with a heart of flesh. But it's God that does that. And so that's what we see. What Paul is telling Titus is, hey, we were once like them. Remember who you were. And teach them how they cannot be that way. He says, The kindness of, and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according, but according to His mercy He saved us. And so there's the kicker, because it's easy to look at this, and certainly as an unregenerate person, as a non Christian person the natural man, if you will. It's easy to look at lists like this in Scripture and say, okay, well, I'll just not do those things, and then I'll do the good things, and then I'll be good because I've avoided the bad and I've done the good. But the problem with that is outside of Christ, everything we do, even if it looks good on the outside, is bad because of the heart out of which those deeds flowed. So that's the problem. We've, I've heard it you know, over and over. Well, if we just live by the Ten Commandments, if anybody, everybody just followed the Ten Commandments, we can't. And that's what Paul wanted Titus to impress upon the Cretans is these things, these attributes that we're supposed to be sober and holy and just and loving good and being hospitable and teaching the younger women and teaching the older, younger men to be sober and just, all of these things that elders are supposed to do and regular non-ordained Christians are supposed to do, we don't do them in our own strength because our strength is useless in the face of God's standard. Paul makes it clear. He says, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But according to his mercy, God's mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The washing of regeneration is God's act of washing us clean in Christ. The renewing of the Holy Ghost is the Holy Ghost coming into the lives of dead people and making them alive. The Holy Ghost regenerates. He is the one that converts. He is the one that convinces and convicts and comforts. It's God, the Holy Ghost, that comes into the non-Christian's life, the Cretians' life, our lives. Because outside of Christ, we're no different than the Cretians. And that's the thing that I think sometimes we forget. We get so caught up in who we are in Christ, we forget what we once were. And that's why I think it's wise that we remind ourselves the, of, of chapter 3, verse 3, every now and again. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. Paul said it elsewhere. He said it in Ephesians. He said it to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. But what? You were washed. Implying what? That somebody did the washing. You were baptized, that somebody did the baptizing. See, that's the thing that so many times outside of Christ we get wrong about the Christian faith. And I say we because I was converted as an adult. And so I know many adult converts that have a similar testimony. We looked at Scripture prior to our conversion as a list of things that we do and a list of stuff that we avoid so that God will accept us. And that is not the Christian faith. That is every other false religion that there ever was. Do enough, avoid enough bad stuff, and maybe the God of whatever ism or ology it is will accept you. But that's not Christianity. The Christian faith is something far better. Christian faith is you bring nothing to the table to make yourself right. In fact, every single time you think you're doing something right, you're standing in a hole... And digging that hole deeper. But the good news is that someone who could do something about it did do something about it. Enter the person and work of God our Savior, to use Paul's language in chapter 3. So it's not by our own works righteousness, he says, But it's according to God's mercy that He saved us by the washing of regeneration as He renews our spirits, as He renews our lives, as He washes us clean with the blood of His Son. We are made holy by that blood because that blood was shed and that blood has power because of whose blood it was. It's the God-man, not ourselves, not some other human being. Fully God, fully man. Fully God because a divine being was offended and only a divine being can satisfy divine wrath. Fully man because man was the one that sinned against that holy being and only man can set that right. So Christ is fully God and fully man, two distinct natures, one person. That blood is efficacious. It's effective to renew us, to make us new, to make us God's, G-O-D, apostrophe S. That apostrophe means a lot. Paul goes on to Titus. He says in verse 6, and he names it, that's the spoiler right there. He says it's Christ's blood. Christ abundantly shed his blood. That being justified by his grace, God's unmerited, we've done nothing to deserve it, And yet God has given us favor. He's shown us mercy. That's what grace is. We don't deserve it. We rightly deserve God's wrath and curse in our sin. He would be justified in condemning every single one of us, no matter where we're from, no matter what nation we were born in, no matter which gender we are, no matter how old we are. Naturally speaking, it would be just for God to condemn us. And so Paul is saying in his mercy and in his grace, we are now heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs of what? Of it all. The doctrine of adoption tells us that by Christ's blood, we are brought in to the family of God. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who may have had broken or dysfunctional family units and don't really know how a a normal family works, whatever that means to people. Healthy family, let's call it that. That doesn't know how a healthy family works. This may be our only healthy family, the church family. But that's exactly what we are. We are brothers and sisters. We don't say it. I don't call people brother like Hulk Hogan calls people brother. He calls everybody brother, even though he's not related to any of them. But I can call my Christian male friend brother and my Christian female friend sister because that's what we are in Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters, and as such are entitled to everything that the Father has. If you've read the Anne of Green Gables books, Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote, about an orphan Anne Shirley that's adopted into the Cuthbert family. It's a legal process. And when she's adopted into the Cuthbert family, she has all the rights and responsibilities and blessings that a Cuthbert has. Their land was her land. Their house was her house. Their crops are her crops. And their legacy and birthright is her legacy and birthright. So what's Christ's legacy and birthright? He gets it all. And in Christ, we do too. We're heirs according to the promise that God made us through his son. And for any of us who've struggled to get by in life, who haven't had two pennies to rub together, who've had more month than money, recognizing that God has poured out favor and blessing in Christ, and not only to regenerate us, not only to wash our sins away, not only to make us blessed on this life, knowing that our sins are forgiven and our iniquities are covered, but that there is an eternal hope. And it would be enough, to some extent, let me be careful with this, enough... That God would say, you know what, in Christ, you'll have peace and assurance in this life. I mean, that would be great, given that God's judgment hung over us like the sword of Damocles. But it's far more than that. His mercy and his grace extend far more than just the mere 65 to 85 or more years that we're living. That it's not just now, it's later and forever forever that whatever hurts and whatever suffering and whatever pain we may have had prior to our regeneration, it's gone. We can look forward. We can have peace now. But we can also look forward and yearn for exactly what verse 7 tells us, that being justified by His grace, because we are justified by His grace. Justified is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardoneth all of our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ alone, received the righteousness of Christ and received by faith alone. So now that we're justified, because of that justification that God graciously gave and gives, now we are able to look forward to eternal life. That hope that comes of being together with God, the Father and God the Son forever, being united. It's a hope that I think in our current climate we're starting to recognize the importance of remembering more because temporal affluence tends to negate our eternal perspective and we don't see that there's far more out there eternally for us because we're fixated on how great things are now. But you take those things away... And now we're in a position where we've got to remember that in Christ it's not just about the now. It's about uniting to it's about God fulfilling his promise to be our God and for him us to be his people eternally. Our our vision is far too limited. And so what Paul is saying that look, we were once like that, but now you got to tell them tell these folks in Crete And since God preserved his word for us, it's it's for us as well. That all these things that a Christian is supposed to do and be, they aren't done in their own strength. They're done because of what Christ has done for them first. Tell them that, Titus. Tell them that it's because of what Christ did, that they have hope in this life and hope in the next life. You've got to get that point across to them. And we desperately need it too. Because like I said, left on our own, we're just as Cretan as the Cretans. We're liars. We're adulterers. We're blasphemers. We're gluttons. All of the vice lists that you see in Scripture. Everything we heard earlier in our, our service. That's what we are naturally. And while we were that, Christ did the work for our salvation. That's what grace is. While he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still all of those things in these lists, Christ died for us. The godly for the ungodly. To make us sons and daughters, to make us his brothers and sisters, while at the same time being our Lord. And Paul is telling Titus, you've got to get this point across to the folks because don't let them think that they can just work their way into heaven. That's not how it works. Paul continues on in verse 8 and following. He says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God... They, I'm sorry, there's a... There we go. There's a, I thought it was a comma in my Bible. It was a piece of dirt. <laughs> that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. Look at how the wording of that sentence is. In my Bible, it says this. These things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God, that comes first, might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. You believe. From the belief flow the good works. To do it any other way is works righteousness. I work to believe. Or I do the things and then belief comes. Or... My faith is the work that I give back to God. Some people think that faith is the gift that man gives back to God. That's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. No, we are called to believe. Trust in the promises of God. This is the work that God calls us to do. When we talk about what duty God requires of man, that's Westminster Shorter Catechism 3. The duty is obedience to His revealed will. That's Westminster 39. Obedience to His revealed will is that we would believe in the one that He sent. That's John 6. We believe in Christ. We trust in His work. He regenerates. He converts us. Well, let me put that right. He converts us. The Holy Ghost regenerates us. We believe in the power and the person of Christ. And from those two things flow the good works. It is only in Christ that a human being can do anything good. We talked about Mr. Walker's ordination service. At some point, his trial's coming up. One of the questions that I was asked in my own ordination trials was, what precedes faith? This is important. It bears in mind what's going on in chapter 3 here. What precedes faith? And the answer is regeneration. Because to flip it around is a work righteousness system. God has to change the sinner's heart so that he can believe. Because if he believes on his own, salvation is not of the Lord. So it's got to be belief first. But before that, God regenerates. He changes the hearts of the sinner. Regeneration is that spiritual heart transplant. And so from the belief... Regeneration, faith, flow the good works. The good works are the fruit of the belief. They are the things that we look at and go, yeah, 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 yeah. I can see that person believes because he's following, he's doing the things that the Bible tells him that he needs to be doing. He needs to be hospitable, he needs to be sober, he needs to love good people. He wants to be around, wants to be a blessing to others. These are the things that the Bible says, and he's following that. So I can deduce good and necessary consequence, that he has believed and trusted in the promises of God. But since we're going to be doing some good things, we ought to avoid some bad things too. And the chapter rounds out, barring the normal close where Paul recognizes people, and we'll talk about that. He says, look, you believe in God, you trust in the promises, you are heirs. Don't think you can work to earn this, it is God's free grace that he gives you. You maintain the good works as a result of the, as the, the fruit of your justification. But here, I need you to avoid foolish questions and genealogies. I need you to avoid contentions and striving about the Mosaic law, because that's what that is. Talking about the law, we're talking about the law of Moses. So don't get fixated on these things that are, are pointless. Contextually, the foolish questions, the genealogies may have been the Jewish genealogies and things like that. We would say something along the lines of, don't get so fixated on the argumentation of the ancient alien thing or um, some sort of goofy bloodline of Jesus through Mary Magdalene like the Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code nonsense. Don't get so fixated on those things. And let yourself be drawn away, because those things are unprofitable and vain. They don't don't glorify God, they don't help you enjoy Him forever. They draw you away from the Word. They draw you away from trusting in the promises of God. Because those things, whatever those things are that aren't from Scripture, call into question the Scriptures themselves. He said, avoid that stuff, it's nonsense, don't even worry about it. And in the very next verse... He deals with the type of person that would peddle that nonsense. He says, A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he, is, he that is such is subverted and is sinneth, and sinneth being condemned of himself. So the people that peddle this stuff, look, call them to repentance. Call them to repentance a second time. And then let it ride. Because they're Condemned. They don't trust in the promises of Scripture. They don't trust in the person and work of Jesus. They're already condemned. They're sinning. You can't do anything with them. Avoid that stuff. What is Paul talking about? What can we deduce? What he's talking about is turning from wickedness and turning to righteousness, which is what the Christian is called to do every single second they're alive. Turn from sin turn to righteousness. In order to do that, you have to know what righteousness is. And in order to know what righteousness is, you have to know who is righteous. And the only righteous one is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we don't know Jesus Christ, we don't know righteousness. And we don't know our right hand from our left, no different than the Ninevites in Jonah's day. Paul wraps this chapter after talking about the Christian life being one that's Christ-centered and Christ-focused, recognizing that, we're, that the, the sinner is saved by grace through faith alone, that he turns from wickedness and nonsense and walks a pious path that the Scriptures lay out. And while that person is walking that path, they're not only looking at what's going on around them at the time, they're looking to something far better down the line so that when things in front of them are, are cloudy or troubled, they can be encouraged by what God has promised them, that they are heirs because of what Christ did for them. And so it's important, I think, people want to just gloss over the, the Pauline closing here where he's naming some folks. But look at, what, look at what, some of the things that he says. You, you see the name the names of folks that are a part of Paul's world and the Cretans, and he's linking Titus to that as well. But let's look at verse 14. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they be not unfruitful. All of the good works that we do in Christ help us to be fruitful. Help us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Help us to handle the necessary, what are the necessary uses? The stuff of life. All of the good works we do, the hospitality, all of the things that we're talking about, they're the necessary, the helping people, the providing meals, they're necessary uses, they're the natural flow of Christian community and fellowship and life. Those are the helpful, fruitful things. And so Paul closes reminding Everyone that's going to read this letter, because it wasn't just going to Titus, more often than not, these letters are also read to the churches proper, because Titus would have needed to have some credibility, if you will. This is somewhat of a letter of introduction, where people come in and they say, all right, Paul is writing about this guy, so we can listen to this guy. So Paul is also aware that his audience is far wider than merely Titus, and so he's drawing everyone together. And saying that it's not just, we're not just talking about some spirituality stuff. We're talking about practical things. The Christian life is eminently practical. The Christian faith is eminently practical. It's not merely recognizing that our sins are forgiven in a theological sense. It's being part of the community, having that fellowship, being able to recognize that we are saved by an individual and personal confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But we are brought into a larger family, and that family isn't just going to function together in eternity, it functions together now. And so the fruit of our lives needs to reflect the reality of our conversion in context with other believers That's the point that Paul is trying to make, that Titus needs to get that point across to a stubborn and stiff-necked and selfish generation. Does that sound familiar? It was the problem that Moses had, it's the problem that Jesus had, it's the problem that Titus has, and it's the problem that we have. Outside of Christ, we are all stiff-necked, every one of us. So it is to Christ that we must turn as the only cure for the death sentence with which we are currently living in our natural state. And for those of us who have turned to Christ, there is peace and freedom and true liberty so that we can truly do good works and be a blessing to those people around us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him for that. Father, we don't deserve anything but your wrath. You showed us mercy. You showed us your attributes. You've said you were slow to anger. For many of us, you patiently uh, planned our conversion. For some, you've given uh, them as covenant children. They've never known a day without Christ as their Lord. We're thankful for those folks, too. Most importantly, Father, we're thankful for how you love us. We're thankful that you make us your own in Christ. You adopt us into your family. You declare us justified for Christ's sake alone. You make us holy. You make us like Jesus and less like Adam. Father, we ask that you'd please forgive us when we forget that, when we're stubborn with others, uh, when we aren't hospitable, when we aren't at peace with others. Help us to truly be peacemakers the way Jesus tells us. And thank you for persevering in, with, and through us. We ask these things for our good and for Christ's glory. Amen.